1: This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from, and with gratitude to, our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey, alongside showing support for busy being black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Today, I'm in conversation with another of our queer black icons, Campbell X. He's an award-winning filmmaker whose work often explores queer masculinity and desire. Our conversation covers everything from understanding ourselves away from the white gaze, yes, that's spelled G-A-Z-E and G-A-Y-S, to the importance of exploring our own desires and intergenerational conversations. Campbell has just left the studio, and I'm beaming from ear to ear, so you know what? I'm just going to let this conversation speak for itself. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Campbell X. So when we last saw each other at the AZ Hub, we touched briefly on intergenerational conversations. And I think we're part of a generation. And actually, maybe this happens with every generation. But I know that there are many of us who perhaps feel incorrectly that we are the first ones to be doing this exploration of identity and belonging and race. And I think we might feel like that because the people who came before us might not be readily visible. And so I, want, so I guess my first question is, mm. who helped pave the way for you? Mm. And how have you shown deference to them either through your work and in your life?
2: I think it's a really good question. I, th- I think what's interesting is not everything is available on Google. <laughs> and that's my first thing. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the interesting and important stuff is not available on Google. That's not a bad thing. And in fact, some publications historically have chosen not to be on Google because then things get monetized by other people and doesn't come to the originators. Right. So that's interesting when you yeah. think about it. So I think it's really important to talk to people. The people who paved the way for me were people like, you know, Lord, um, James Baldwin, Tchaikovsky, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just was looking for people who had similar desires. It wasn't about identity, actually. It was about desire. I just looked for people who desired along similar lines. So It didn't matter what their embodiment was like. It was just that they had similar desires to me and they managed to survive and live their life. So I was reading books, listening to music, that sort of thing. Sylvester, you know. Mm. Oh, when I read about him and how he defied the record companies and refused to kind of Masculinize his image In order to get sales And that was in the 70s You know what I mean It's mm. like um, That was so inspiring to me I was like wow You know You did that Okay I have no nothing to, to moan about So And then Whenever I went to bar It was older People who looked after me In bars You know So real spaces Intergenerational again mm. And that's how I met people in bars, and they would take me under their wing, and they will show me the ropes. You know, men and women and trans people. So it wasn't it wasn't this sort of binary world of like cis or what. We were all freaks. We were all freaks in an enclosed space, um, driven by desire and a, and, a, and, a, and and to find home, to find other people like us. And they would invite me into their homes, look after me, encourage me to dream to be who I wanted to be, and tell me stories about their lives. And it's really interesting because I was having a conversation with Stuart who the DJ, about that very thing just a few days ago. And we are saying, it's interesting that we sought out the people as well. We didn't just stay in one place and Mm, think, oh, are going to come to me we we thought oh who are the people who lived the life before we did there must be somewhere and we just go out and find them and just talk to them and you know find their stories really we want we were hungry we were hungry to do that and i think maybe sometimes people think everything that's available is on the internet (laughs) Very little About especially queer people of colour And especially queer people's lives It's not on the internet You're not going to find it You have to actually talk to people And I think that's a beautiful thing You know, you're forced to interact in real life And ask questions, you know Mark Thompson was um, speaking at Q Community Pod Community Pod, yeah Community Pod And he said something And I just thought Mark said he'd never been to a white gay club From the time he was out He only went to black clubs And I was like
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: That, you know, when he said that, I was like, "This I didn't know. This is a story. I wanted to find out more." Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like people don't even know that shit like that existed yeah. in the past. That a young black kid coming out could only go to black clubs, and that was there were so many that he didn't need to go to any white clubs. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I, it's a it's a reality that I can't even imagine,
2: and it's a reality that doesn't exist now. Yeah. yeah. So. We have to think. Don't imagine things were worse in the past, or they're better in the past. They were just different, you know. Mm. Um, and you only know by talking.
1: And I suppose there's there's an intergenerational collaboration that needs to happen. I don't know I, if I think if we think of our families, yeah. And uh, in and in a, and we and if we if we use uh, perhaps a crude example, yeah, because it's perhaps not that widely applicable, but. There, there are the intergenerational sharings that happen within that kind of nuclear family, That's as it were. And particularly in black And I wonder if, if we kind of are missing that within the queer black space. There's an acknowledgment, certainly, I think, among us that we're all family in some way. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we lean on each other as family mm-hmm. and share those stories, mm-hmm. right? Because that oral history, which comes to life in in places like this and in conversations like these, mm-hmm. um, will ultimately be lost.
2: There will be, but um, Keza Rose and I um, started to do that with Cutiepot Family, which which we created as an intergenerational project. Mm. So it's it's always with older Cutiepot people and younger. Um, and um, she's also created um, AZ Hub. Yeah through AZMAG, which does that. So I think there's some people who are craving that and are wanting those conversations and, you know, through her and I doing that. Also, um, you're doing it with um, this podcast and um, UK Black Pride does it. So I think it it is happening. Um, What may not happen, it, it may not be like formalized. Right. But it is, it is happening, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, you know, I mentor uh, younger um, filmmakers as well. It's all informal. They'll approach me. But I'm open to helping people because I just think, yeah, I have expertise that I can help, and, and I do. And I, I want to encourage people to let them know, yeah, you can do it. Because I was encouraged by um, older queer people, you know, who were incredibly nurturing and holding of me and I want to be able to do the same.
1: Um, In a blog post you wrote for the Huffington Post, Stud Life is a romantic comedy about LGBT life on the multicultural streets of inner city London. Stud Life did not come into film territory that is bursting with content. I can count on my hand all the queer people of color who have made feature films in the UK. The reason for this has possibly been already written up in a report by a management consultant employed By any one of the film funders in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Do
2: you know what? I can't even remember writing that. (laughs) But it probably has. Um,
1: I just thought it was so delightfully pointed.
2: (laughs) Arch. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah, Well, it speaks to... It speaks to this very... um, Very reoccurring Mm -hmm. uh, mode of working that these Mm -hmm. film funders are indeed... Society at large really has. Mm -hmm. um, Which pays and consults everyone except black people to figure out the solution to a problem that involves black people. Yeah, I don't know. I just wondered what your experience was making Stud Life and and how that that came about.
2: Well, um, interestingly enough, I um, applied for finance from one of the film funders um, for Stud Life and they uh, rejected it. And I thought, do you know what? I am gonna find out why you've rejected this film because I, I I think it's I think it's I, right. <laughs> and uh, they wrote back this report, um, and you know they said one of the things was they couldn't see a market for the film, and I thought to myself, okay, they don't see a market. Well, what I am gonna do is I am gonna have a reading of the script with other people who are my friends and our colleagues and see what they think do they think there's not a market for this and I had the reading and people were really bowled over and they gave good feedback and so I did another draft and I had another reading and I thought you know what five people or six people including myself like this film I think that's enough for me to get going and um I did a crowdfunder for it, which was crowdfunded. Had just started because remember it was 2010 mm. when um, I decided to shoot it, and just brought along a whole set of diverse range of queer people to help me make this film. And people were so enthusiastic, so loving, so giving in the whole process. It really buoyed me up, and. Um, having shot it, I managed to attract um um uh, a little bit more investment through the auspices of Stella Nuimo, who is an industry um producer. I had two other producers but they're um Lula Bellevue, who um, as you might know, um was one of the founders of Quim magazine, which was like the first erotic um, of, it was called for Dykes of All Persuasions. <laughs> and so she, because of her, we managed to get lots of <laughs> material um, in the film. And um, Nadia Kasam. So <clears throat> Stella managed to get other investment to finish the film. And, you know, it went on to win awards. It went on to be um, on Netflix, USA and Canada. So, you know, it shows you... One, I think a lot of people who are the gatekeepers don't really know our world. They think they do because maybe they have like one gay friend, uh, whatever. <laughs> um, but that gay friend's usually white, uh, whatever, mm. um, and they don't know our world. And a lot of LGBT people came to me and said, "I don't know this world because they don't know the queer black world. They, it's it's removed from them. You know, the world that doesn't play." the smiths on indie music you know they don't they just don't <laughs> yeah, know that yeah. world you know or some kind of so um it was an eye opener yeah. for other lgbt people as well right and,
1: because there's yeah. there's a there is at once a universality to our experiences mm. right that it's is. relationships and interactions and mm-hmm. jealousy yeah um and also a specificity yeah that applies to the lives of of queer black people and how we then interact with the world around us. Um, And I think people, I mean, would you agree that people kind of miss that universe? They don't expect that universality.
2: I think generally people don't see black as human, as the universal human, Uh, unless I think we're going more to that with African-Americans, but not black generally. Mm. Um, The human is default white cis heterosexual man and even if you go to the hospital you look at the charts very often the charts of human is based on that white male model you know you don't really see a variety of humans in hospitals look at charts like charts around bodies and things like that so we are fed through um, dominant Hollywood cinema the the narrative and the psychology and the dreams and the fantasies of the cisgender heterosexual white man, so we've we've we are brought up to learn that from a very young age, and that becomes even our our experience um, of viewing cinema. We view through that lens. We view through a kind of dominant Hollywood lens. So if we see indie films, we find them kind of uncomfortable because we are so used to. Being our our brains being templated along um, that white, cisgendered, heterosexual male fantasy paradigm narrative. The way he frames women, the way he frames queer people, the way transgender people are framed, it's all through his lens, his fantasy, his paradigm. So to disrupt that and go, actually, I'm going to shift that frame to my perspective. It then becomes uncomfortable, but it is, you know, we are are human, he is also human, and his experience is specific to his identity, but it's when it's translated as the universal identity, that's when I think it becomes problematic. it's so deeply ingrained. So deeply ingrained. (laughs) It's so deeply ingrained. His beauty standards, like everything is so ingrained that to kind of pull ourselves away from it feels like almost sometimes tearing out a bit of ourselves as well. Mm. Because we learn it. We learn it in education. We are colonized, literally. Our our imaginations are colonized by education and dominant culture, you know, dominant visual culture, particularly.
1: Well, and then we have to... I mean, part of this exercise, <laughs> battle is probably yeah. a better word, to to decolonize our minds, yeah. is is how we then find what is valuable <coughs> within us mm. uh, per, per our own standards, as yeah. it were, which I think yeah. is, you know, we, we talk a lot about the white gaze, mm-hmm. <laughs> G-A-Y yeah. and G-A-Z-E, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how yeah. we break away from yeah. that. But I don't think there's a lot of talk about how we then reimagine ourselves yeah. outside of that yeah. and so how have you learned to do that and, in, and is your art a process of you figuring that out or have you always known how to exist outside of that
2: well I think um, I, I, I have to say I'm very fortunate that my parents were Pan-Africanists from a very early age they were very critical of um, dominant education and, and what we received so I you know TV was banned in, in our home And then when we got it, it, I was probably about 12. um, My parents always um, let us watch it under supervision. So they would be like this voiceover narrative going, you see that, that's why they've, this is all a construction. And the reason it's constructed is because of capitalism and because they want us to buy something. And because, you know, we don't see images of ourselves, where the kind of African, beautiful African women, where the dark skinned women, you know, they would always constantly question, why are, we, why are we seeing these images? Why are we seeing these images? So I grew up with that already in my head f- through my parents. And they, they often tried to push books onto me that, I you know, as a teenager, I had no interest in reading. But later on in life, I um, picked them up. And one of them was um, Franz Fanon, Black Skin, White Mask. And that was like an eye opener to me because he deals with the mental the kind of the, the 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 almost maddening nature of of racism, and you know how it affects our minds, and you know you know and being queer, then reading reading Audre Lorde and you know James Baldwin and all those books, I started to shift my own perception. But it doesn't mean I'm human. So and I'm a filmmaker, and I I learned filmmaking in a Eurocentric paradigm. So, you know, often when I write, I have to re-question myself about why am I writing this character this way? Why am I framing the story this way? But I'm not saying it's not flawed because even mm. when I try to look at things, I might be still not looking at it in that way of decolonizing. I think decolonization is a process. it has, It's not a destination. Do you know what I mean? Oof. It's like we can't we 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 put so much emphasis on on perfection and complete. Like if it's a disease, we can take a pill and be healed. No, because while we're decolonizing, we're being recolonized.
1: Oh, yeah. We're like in the process of rehabilitation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
2: It's like and we don't live in isolation, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I, I was
1: just thinking about my I said to my friend the other day that I'm no longer dating white men. And literally the first white guy that said hi to me, I was like, hey. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Because it's just like, and it's like, do we beat ourselves up about it? Or do we um, choose white people who are race traitors? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah.
1: I think part of it, if I'm honest, is that in trying to rehabilitate from this colonization, Mm. um, there doesn't seem to be much room for error. No, right, as we're no. all kind of very publicly trying oh to wake up and yeah. and kind of reposition our lives in pursuit of yeah. perhaps a radicalism or a more yeah. um, black centric or afrocentric worldview yeah. mm-hmm. um, those of us who are are having a bit of a t- t- taking a longer time to switch to switch that lens don't have a lot of room for error in that in that respect
2: yeah and there's not a lot of room for being compassionate i always say it's not somebody's skin color that's important to me and it isn't it's their mindset mm-hmm. because you know i have um family friends and colleagues who are of, of different nations of different skin colors and if i start to look at people people's skin color what does that make me you know what how how why am i judging people on superficial things that are also based on the eurocentric paradigm they created this paradigm to divide and conquer so i uh, in by by me using that as a judgment i am i am using the master's tools to disempower myself mm. so you know just to quote audrey lord and i just think th- there has to be another way of um reaching out to people and loving and working with people based on people's politics and and their mindset not on what they look like Mm. you know not on what they look like or what and what and based on what they look like what you assume their identity to be because that's the other thing you know um do you know what i mean yeah go on um because there's so much about optics now we're all about optics i think
1: yes you know we're
2: all about oh if somebody has this particular haircut has these particular clothes you know has written this particular article we then assume we know this person and their politics but we don't unless we have a conversation Mm. you know unless we speak to somebody unless we smell them in real life you don't really know and we're being pushed into interacting across the internet. It's not. It is not human. It is not a human form of interaction. We're being manipulated.
1: Yeah, and I, even know that I
2: work th- in it and I love it, mm. I know it's a manipulation.
1: I I feel like we're not designed for it.
2: No, we're not. <laughs> we're not designed. We're not, no. and it's. And it's causing anxiety and depression amongst so many people, that tells you something mm. already. If if something like if if it's, it's a handy tool, but you know, all tools are handy, but we have to look at how we use them and how are they there for healing or they're there to um, somehow diminish our humanity mm. in some ways. Which I think happens a lot. That call out culture, that, you know, I'm perfect, you're not I just like you know what? I can't deal. I don't know how we Because I'm there. not perfect. No. You know, and... Um, <laughs> None of us are. You know, my last work, Desire, was about imperfection. It was about failing. I made it thinking, if I fail, it's okay. Failure is okay. But what you
1: does know? failure look like for you?
2: Um, failure looks like um, if the sound isn't perfect... For instance, I um, I recorded some of the sound on my phone and I, I know as a professional filmmaker the kind of sound that I can expect when you have a professional sound recordist. But I thought, I just want to make this. So a phone, sound recording, fine. I'll go, I'll go along with that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I use a DSLR camera, not an ARRI with, you know, prime lenses. I know how it can look with that, but I just wanted to have an intimate feel with the subjects. And that's what I got, you know. I got, because it wasn't just me and the um, people who are being interviewed, it was far more intimate mm. with the sound that I got. And the same with the camera, you know. It was a tiny, tiny crew. Um, and it allowed more intimacy. and And that's very powerful.
1: And do you find that people have been forthcoming with that intimacy, that there is an appetite for it
2: i think i can only speak for my personal experience and i think i've um i'm known for certain kinds of work and i'm known for having integrity in my work and i also i'm not outside of the community from which i work right so when I finish it's not like oh bye I'm on to my next one which is somewhere else with people I don't really care about and Mm. I've drawn down my salary and I'm away do you know what I mean Um, these are my family and my friends that I use in my work so and you know colleagues so um, Mm. there is that level of trust I think and it's kind of building up like a like a queer indie film stroke art world Mm. you know uh, where people Feel seen as well, seen and heard.
1: I mean, like, you're you're named as one of the contemporary, or sorry, one of the leaders of contemporary queer cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, which I think is such an incredible. Um, who
2: who did that? <laughs> I I, I want to meet them. Yeah. Um. I. How does mm, this sit with you?
1: Uh,
2: I think it's a very strange feeling to be it's it's one I, I I sort of think I do have things to say and I have interesting things to say but I also think lots of people have interesting things to say do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and um, it's like yeah that doesn't win me any favours with anybody you know every film I make I have to prove that I can make a film I remember um Uh, seeing Cheryl Denier who uh, made Watermelon Woman and um, Stranger Inside and um, she's now working on Queen Sugar with Ava DuVernay and she came to um, the film festival in London with Stranger Inside and she had made loads of films and she said when she was doing Stranger Inside which is a fantastic film you should see um, it was like she'd made her first film She'd never like they were treating her like she'd never made a film before. This right. was her first film because it was like first industry film. And I was really shocked. But actually, that's how industry, quote unquote, works. It's like you can make all you want outside, darlings. Yeah. Make your little funny queer things. Just go, just. Yeah. But, you know, when you're with the big boys, that's not important. Right. You know, this is the real film. You know This is a real film With the big boys You know Quote unquote White boys White boy company So um, It was a It was a salutary lesson For me Hearing You know Her speak very um, Openly and transparently About that And um, And a wake up call Because You can Do a lot of work You know Um and are validated by your peers within like queer world and at the same time you can remain invisible to another world you know
1: but how important is visibility to a wider audience outside of the people you capture within your work
2: I think it's economic you know um, it's no coincidence that I crowdfunded for Stud Life and um, I work outside uh, self-financing or getting grant grant applications together. Um, in the wider world, there's finance. And I think that is part of, um, that's part of the joy, but that's also part of the problem. Because to be financed um, by the the mainstream industry, if you are queer, and I say queer, not LGBT, because I think it's a different perspective, if you are uh, if you center blackness um, if you question uh, white supremacy and the white gaze JYZ or J-Z-E or JY mm. <laughs> you know um, you're in for a struggle because as I said before that is the paradigm that is considered the norm, the um, the template, the truth. and if you deviate from that somehow, it feels like a critique on their truth. But also like
1: inevitably is.
2: Yeah. But like your experience is not the truth, (laughs) you know, because they don't know that experience. It's like, nah, I don't believe you. Mm. I don't that's not that's not the blackness. I know where where, where, where the guns, where's the violence? (laughs) Where's the dysfunction? I I don't know that blackness. So it's not real. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So in a way, sometimes I think people perform identities, perform blackness, perform queerness in order to fit within financial um, constraints. So if you want to work beyond coming out movies or beyond a kind of um, beyond whiteness in some ways with, with queer work, it will be a financial struggle. It really will be. If. In this in this century, I don't think it was um, for people who were, you know, making films in the eighties. Because you know, if, if you look at black queer film history, there was a lot happening in the eighties in the USA, in Canada, in the UK, and then suddenly it started to peter out when multinationals took over and the profit margin became the issue, and accountants took over filmmaking.
1: Hmm. And so there's obviously this this wider audience, it's, it's economic.
2: Yeah.
1: And you're making this work which is decidedly queer, mm-hmm. if not always about race. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and this, these are obviously the stories that you want to tell and it comes mm-hmm. with a great deal of work to tell those stories because mm-hmm. of a lack of yeah. of um, support from the, from the machine as it were. Mm-hmm. And so how important is it for you to then go beyond where you've been, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I think the thing is, my work's not usually about race. <laughs> Probably that might be the thing, because I never, you know, it, let, let's let say in stud life. Racism is never mentioned. There's nothing about race or racism. It's 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 uh, a friendship between a stud lesbian and a white gay man. Yeah. And then she falls in love with um, this feminine black lesbian but
1: who uh, appears mixed-raced? But yeah, could be the, the actress yeah. is yeah. Um,
2: uh, Robin Kerr. But um, you know, she could be a lighty. You know what what we call light-skinned. <laughs> um, but it isn't about race and racism. It, it the film is about friendship and it's about who really is who who is our intimate. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's also about how in london people speak patois it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is because patois is the parlance of london yeah it's it's mixed with cockney but that's london you know that's our experience it's very it's very fused and i never saw that i don't see that in dominant cinema i just don't see it it's either the the you know the black people speaking patois and the white people being unknowing, which is not my experience. You know, the Mm. people that I know, the white people have hot sauce in their bags, you know. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? And it's like, I don't see those white people. Where are they? They're (laughs) obviously not in your TV land or your cinema land, but they're in my world, you know. Um, They're they're not ignorant white people. So it's, it's how I try to show... My life as I see it being lived right now in London. And also, you know, in queer films, you never see people speaking patois. And, you know, there's a barbershop scene and, um, you know, uh, Donna Krill, who's um, the actress who um, was the one of the barbers, she let it rip in patois. You know, it, it, mm. I wanted to see what I hear when I'm on the bus, what I hear when I'm on the street, not just the kind of monolingual London, which isn't my, and, and, and East London, which isn't my East London, you know, and I hope that comes over. So it's not really race per se, it's more how um, London has some kind of fluidity that it's, it, it's particular to London. Mm. It's particular to London, and it's amazing.
1: And I think it's an interesting point to point out, particularly in this moment when so much of the conversations that I'm having, and indeed many of us are having, centre almost singularly Mm -hmm. around race and our experiences bumping into each other um, because of it. So to be kind of brought back into the spaces in which we actually live... Mm. um, when we are having these friendships that don't actually center around someone else's white privilege, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. there's a realistic there's a reality here that I that maybe we forget
2: and we forget that um there are people who move easily into the language of white privilege who are our friends, who will just be like they will pick up on things. Because they're au fait with that language, and they're au fait with their own white privilege, and they understand that how they move into the world is not how we move through the world, and you know, oh yeah, we're not teaching every single white person no us. Right. no, we're not and and but we don't see those white people because I suspect those white people are not working in TV right now <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean so yeah. they they are, they are our friends yeah. but they're they're not commissioning stuff right. so. You know, and um, and it's just how to get to, to for people to see that other world because it is another world, you know. Like they say, there are two, you know, when they're talking about Trump in America, there are two Americas. Well, there are also two UKs, you know. There's also two Britons. There is. The, the Britain that we belong to that is knowing about certain things and and their second nature mm. and, and and it has nothing to do with generation. I think there are people who have always been au fait and you know have moved within certain circles um and people who just don't get it just don't get it you can't you know they their world is different we we' are, We're living in like almost like two different countries mm. with different languages you know and different cinematic languages as well. Yeah. It frustrates me.
1: Talk about that frustration.
2: Well, it's frustrating because um, I sometimes think, <clears throat> am I that, am I, am I crazy? To see a different world that's that's not being shown. So it's not like I expect to see my identity. I don't, because I tell you, my identity is so specific, and I think everybody's is. I don't look at the tally and go, ooh, I don't see myself reflected. Oh, my God, it's terrible. I've never done that, because I just think it won't be the end. But what I don't see is the variety of people. Right. You know, the diversity of different voices, different body types, different kinds of um genders that mix of people who are surprising you know Mm. surprising and and joyful that's the other thing it's like when did blackness get synonymous with so much misery and pain (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it, it it's almost like it becomes a de facto. You know how they have the the white as universal human. It's like black as universal pain. You know and sufferingation. You know, I'm just like whoa, 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 whoa. That's not my life. You know, and that's not the that's not the kind of work I want to make. Right. And a lot of my works run desire. <clears throat> And finding your finding your place. Where's home? Where's home? You know. Yeah,
1: because actually, you said the desire is a is a des, uh, is a meditation on desire for queer masculinity, including transgender masculinity and female masculinity. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean anything to me.
2: <laughs> Why doesn't not mean anything to you, George? Because I, <laughs> I I'm curious now.
1: <laughs> because I don't know what a desire for queer masculinity is.
2: Right.
1: I. Like that phrase "queer masculinity" doesn't mean
2: anything to you. It
1: d- doesn't. I don't understand it. I'm like, I understand the yeah, two words separately. The two words, queer and, and masculinity, masculine. but I don't yeah. understand them together.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think in in a body that's been assigned female at birth, um, that inhabits that spectrum of masculinity, like butch dykes, um, studs, aggressives, yeah. and for some trans men and non-binary people. Um, there's a slight grey area and overlap. It's not really spoken about. People invisibilize um, those identities. Within that heteronormative gaze, it's considered ugly, ridiculous, ridiculed. Um, but for some people, it's incredibly exhilarating to love and desire somebody who is a trans man or who is a stud or aggressive, Mm. um, lesbian or bisexual person, whether they identify as a woman or not. So um, that film Desire is like a meditation. It doesn't provide answers, it's just about feelings, people talking about their feelings, about what it means to them to find that embodiment incredibly exciting.
1: And so what have you found as part of that? Because immediately mm-hmm. that popped into my head, I kind of, I thought of two two people in particular mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that I find myself attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I have my ideas about why that is, but I want to hear from you mm-hmm. what you found over the course of, of those conversations.
2: Well, I wanted to get away from the kind of, It was only feminine-identified people who were attracted to masculinity. Right. And um, some of the people were trans themselves and some were um, studs or AGs. So I I wanted to mix it up too because very often it's seen as polarities, feminine attracted to masculine and not mask, what they call mask on mask, you know, yeah. <laughs> which I know is the, the epitome in gay men world, but in, um, kind is what of, we're trying to break in, away in, from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas it's looked down on, which is called stud for stud in, um, <laughs> In like uh, queer women of color world, right? So it's looked it, down upon. Looked down upon, yeah. It's usually femme and femme. That's okay, or ma- masculine and feminine. But. So it's just trying to get away from that kind of um, constraining um, hegemony that says you have to like this. If you're this, you have to like this, and if you're like that, you have to be like this. You mm-hmm, know, if mm-hmm. you're if you're if you're masculine, you have to like certain things and, you know, um, behave a certain way. So people talk about their vulnerabilities around masculinity in the film and the pressure to perform masculinity based on that cis-heterosexual template, which is killing all of us, quite frankly, not just, you know... um, So it's... But it's the performance... Of a
1: cis heteronormative of uh, yeah. presentation, I suppose. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. which is unfair, right? Because yeah. it's not cis heteronormative to be whoever it is that you are. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so there's the kind of I don't know if this is making any sense, but it's it's coming together in my head. Yeah. So there's trying to break free from that, right? Yeah. From the from the structures which say you yeah. have to behave in this way. Yeah. But also still ascribing to what we understand to be those heteronormative performances and structures and presentations
2: I think does that make sense yeah they're not heteronormative in their presentations but I think um, for some the internal battle is living up to what is Ah. seen around them like you know which is cis men are the only templates of masculinity so you see that in TV you see that in your family those are the people we don't grow up with trans men as visible, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. as visible ideas of masculinity or starred lesbians as visible ideas of masculinity, what we grew up with mostly dominant is a cis heterosexual man mm. with um all his dysfunction but also all his um good qualities as well because mm. we have to realize that it's not all bad I don't think it's all bad, you know, and um I think that way of negotiating through what may be dysfunctional, unhealthy things and filtering out the healthy things is always going to be a struggle for anyone who identifies as masculine. Cis included, as well as trans, as well as, you know, stud.
1: Yeah, thank you. I see what I did there.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you? (laughs) I do, that that trap,
1: right? Because your point was that, Mm it was exactly that, that Mm -hmm. there is a cis heteronormative is all we know of masculine. Yeah. And... So that's exactly what we're trying to do, is we're trying to extend what masculine is by showing that that that, that is not the only type of masculine that exists. And actually, being masculine is not trying to perform that version of masculinity. It's trying to perform your very own version of masculinity. And so what I did was I kept pulling it back to the cis heteronormative (laughs) template which we're trying to break away from. Yeah, break away, <laughs>
2: run away. But, see, but it's even hard, even right? even those cis heterosexual men need to run away from it as yes, well, because yes. it's a trap for them. You know, it's a trap. That's why they're dying of heart attacks and you know dying earlier because it is a trap. You know, and committing suicide. It's like how do we all together try to subvert that? I I don't know. I don't know what it came from. How it managed to have such a stranglehold on all of us but we need to challenge it all the time.
1: And so uh, in your is your work in some ways a reflection of the same conversations you're having internally? So if we take desire for example and it's you know it's about this queer masculinity mm-hmm. is that something that you speak openly about or that comes out through your work and through the lens that you used to tell these stories and have these conversations.
2: I don't I don't really talk a lot about a lot of things to be honest. Um, I mostly talk yeah, I think it just comes out through the work. It's not something that I really have massive conversations about. I think I I mostly tend to have conversations about desire. I'm 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 fascinated that we don't really speak about desire a lot. We speak about identity. We speak about our bodies, but we somehow don't manage to speak about what our bodies actually do in intimacy and through desire. We we as queer people have stopped speaking about it and that that's a worry. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to make that. I wanted to get beyond people's bodies into feelings. And why is it a worry? Because our desire is very complex. As you know, you were just talking about, you were like, I'm not going to know white men anymore, and then you saw somebody, and they were like, oh, hi. Yeah. I think desire is very complex. It's, you know, people act like it's something that can be, um. you can make rules about. I'm going to do this, or this is politically incorrect, or, you know, um, if you fancy X person, it's not good. And this is kind of what, like, um, I I have no idea why anybody would want to do that, you know, because I think as long as it's legal and consensual, then that's fine. You're adults, you know what you're doing, you know what you're getting into. And it's not to say that our desires haven't been framed by that dominant paradigm but it's not just desire of of another person it's also um work that's been framed by dominant paradigm to want to work in a corporation is seen as much more attractive proposition and earn a big salary and have a big house than to work in you know in the margins and um have scarce funds. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, yeah. That's desire as well. <clears throat> it's not sexual desire, but it's a desire that's been framed by the kind of dominant capitalistic paradigm that we have. So, obviously, yes, question that, <clears throat> but that's not so easy to escape as people think it is. No, of course not. Because yeah. it's already little virus in our heads.
1: It is a virus. Yeah. I'm thinking about <clears throat> the transformation that takes place. When I take off my glasses mm-hmm. and I put on a cap, mm-hmm. and how somehow in my mind I transform into a more masculine version of myself, right. a more desirable version of myself. Right. Because as I am today, I don't feel desirable. Oh my God, you're so cute. Desi-
2: <laughs> your arms, I noticed your arms, they're amazing. <laughs> and you. then, you know, you're a bottom <laughs> as you walked but- away. <laughs> But, and, and so it is a virus, <laughs> right? Because what
1: happens that we have to have this kind of, like, Clark, that I feel like I have this, like, Clark Kent moment where I have to completely derobe, as it were, from my normal everyday clothes yeah. and then morph into something else to even present myself as thinking I might be desirable or... And I, I don't know, so I think it is... And you, you won't know the answer to that question, but... <coughs>
2: Well, it's an interesting question because um, there was a time I didn't feel desirable because I was shamed for my masculinity. And um, it was only until I met women who actually loved the essence of me and loved that which I had been told all along was ugly, was unattractive, would not get me love. But those were the things that they loved desired found incredibly powerful that it was and and the things that I loved in me as well that you know became incredibly healing so the more I was myself the more I became loved and that that's that's a powerful thing you know and um, I will never you know I feel very grateful to those women who see outside of that um, white supremacist heteronormative toxic gaze that is so crushing on people who are gender non-conforming or who have questions of n- not feeling comfortable with you know mm. um, normalizing and normativizing gender performances do you know what I mean yeah. and I wonder if amongst um, cis gay men that is not so much of a of a thing you know to I mean it seems very normalizing and normativizing it's like men you know yeah. just to prove just <laughs> yeah. to deny the faggotry <laughs> yeah. and uh yeah. let's let's be all men together yeah. and crushing that bit of themselves that was probably beaten you know attacked when they were boys do you know what i mean mm, for sure and i i don't know what your experience might have been like that but i i I see it a lot like femininity is so decried like so looked down upon now actually and um i find it very worrying it's a worrying phase
1: yeah and it feels scary and it feels it feels scary because i because it's happened Mm -hmm. as in because I know what taunts of femininity feel like, I know what that, what how that manifests and how we internalize that, because those are all things I've done, yeah. and so, yeah, to see it and to see this kind of this kind of moving backwards in our community, it feels like is scary, because it's mm. like no, I don't want to go back to high mm. school. <laughs> like yeah. the goal is to get away from that, yeah. but then again in execution mm. when it comes down to the nitty-gritty mm. there's still something that clicks within my own head that says oh, okay now you want to have sex you've got to switch into this person yeah. to be desirable yeah. and so I wonder <clears throat> yeah I don't know and that's yeah, yeah it's just I don't, that's not a question it's yeah. just uh, yeah we all suffer from from this yeah system
2: it we do and My questions are beyond a kind of polemic. You know, the things that I I prefer to look at in my work are the the complex layering of ourselves as humans, not to make a polemic piece, but to be more self-reflective and uh, questioning of... um, kind of why like why do i have to do this or a kind of gentle prodding of ourselves but also challenging us as lgbt people about our own identities you Mm -hmm. know um and not getting too cozy about um just being um sort of rigid and um almost like saying this is the rule this is the rule if you're this you've got to be this way or else we're not going to like you and i'm always like uh why 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 do you have to be that way can't we just like be can't we just be because we ask we ask them we ask the rest of society to be tolerant of us be tolerant of us yet amongst ourselves we're not tolerant at all but we don't we're answer very judgy
1: yeah because i think what we what has been asked of on our behalf, I would say, yeah. is be tolerant and accepting of this type of LGBT person, Yeah. right? The passing yeah. trans, I, and I say passing really reluctantly, but yeah. the passing trans woman, right? Yeah. The most masculine trans men who you wouldn't quote unquote know was, was trans. ever trans. The... Um, the rich the respectable one. homosexual yeah. right who yeah. uh, doesn't have sex and isn't an, it doesn't what's desire right I'm here I want to raise a family and have a white picket fence yeah. right the ba- the power lesbian who wears suits and yeah. lipstick yeah. like those are the versions of us that people on our have asked on our behalf, which I think so many of us is but that's not us yeah what <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah. anyone laughs> asked for <laughs> yeah, and so I think yeah I think that rigidity comes from survival almost mm. right it, it, it's mm. Because I think
2: Mm.
1: what's interesting about trans, for me as a cisgender gay man, Mm. why I feel so deeply passionate about trans people Mm. and that fight is because I feel like trans people, and I hate to put this on them, but I feel like they show us what's possible, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. That there is room (laughs) within ourselves Mm um to actually to to be who whoever it is that we want to be Mm. and i think that potential is scary Mm. for people which might explain part of that part of that pushback i don't know that feels really heavy it feels like a lot to put on the shoulders of trans people i
2: i think everything shows possibility and you know um in a way yes some trans people do that and um Juno you know, Roche is one person who I think is remarkable in that she talks about trans being the destination, and I found that incredibly healing. Not anything else; it's just its own destination, which is tenuous and can be anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I found that very power powerful in that we're not trying to be like you, um, cis normative, yes. cisgender heterosexual people that's something else um we're trying to be our own thing and i think that's the the radical thing which you know if you look at the history of 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 um lgbt people that was always within lgbt lesbian gay bisexual transgender it wasn't just the trans who performed that kind of um the showing of a kind of radical way of looking at gender Cause some lesbians were doing that some gay men were true, doing that true. some bisexual men and women were doing that through desire through performance through, through you know kind of subverting gender with their clothes with their attitudes with their ways of of desire with their ways of being fucked they were saying i don't care i i, I don't care for your norms i don't care for your you know your normal picket fence life i want to be me i want to do me be me But somehow that got co-opted into some capitalistic dream in which some wealthy people thought, "Oh, we need to get more like rights or more like you know, what's the word? Privileges. Mm. You know, if we make money." And it got skewed into that way that you're saying. These kind of people who are who it's almost like the corporate identity of queer (laughs) is um, is 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 what we um, have been led to aspire to, which is fine, be that corporate identity of queer, but there are other identities Mm -hmm. and that needs to come to the fore as well, Mm. you know, and not just be sort of some marginal weirdness.
1: And I think it's, it's, and when I say that I think trans people show us what's possible, Mm -hmm. is that it's a reminder of of everything you've said, right? There was a time when Mm -hmm. our queerness represented something radical, and I'm not so sure that it does for for many of us anymore, No. No, even the word queer.
2: Even the word queer. <laughs> You're right. I don't know what word to use now. No, That's I right think to <laughs> we're just not to say. I don't think we should use the word queer, but rather to well, acknowledge. But <laughs> no, <I'm only> <laughs> like capital Q. No, I am to check But capital Q, E, capital R to make yeah, it different. Yeah, to make you it know, different. Like it <laughs> queer, queer, <laughs>
1: Um. Uh. So we're having this conversation at the tail end of Black History Month. Yeah. And I have some thoughts about Black History okay, Month. Okay, go on so more, so more so this year than, than perhaps ever before. Okay. I feel like Black History Month is performative and decorative.
0: Right.
1: And I'm not sure that it really serves any function because I don't think Black History Month is for black people. I think it's for white
2: people. Mm, interesting.
1: And so Busy Being Black as a platform hasn't really been saying anything on Twitter during Black History Month because <laughs> I haven't been sure what to say say. (laughs) because I've just been so annoyed Mm -hmm. at what I have been seeing and I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the same people that we talk about every year every Black History Month the people who have already had their names immortalized whose work has been canonized I think we just continue to talk about them ad absurdum Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and actually so much of our queer black lives are about that day-to-day survival it isn't about writing a book or creating a film. It's about getting from point A to point B, and I think that we forget that as a community, mm. or indeed we don't think it'll get retweets and so we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hari uh, Ziad, the editor-in-chief of Racebader mm. um, wrote a really powerful piece saying that his ancestors didn't die for the right to vote. Mm. That actually, them sur- they died in the end. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. But they died surviving. Yeah. And it's not a question but the, mm. I feel like from it's a sentiment that you might share. Mm. And I wonder what you think of all of that. And whether, because I think that your work, sorry to finish that point and close it out. Mm. I think that your work shows the quotidian mm. struggle mm. or experiences or interactions, not necessarily struggle, mm. of queerness.
2: Mm. Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, historically, no, it's not a lot. It's it it's it's great, actually. I think um, until quite recently, Black History Month was very straight and erased queer queer people of colors' lives. You know, and um, so for me, it was it was something out there. It was never something. It was just like, yeah, I'm living my life, knowing that um, certain publications would have never written about my work or. You know, seen me as somebody to talk to, in a in a way that were black or or black centred. I think that's changing. Um, but we, it, it, the thing about Black History Month that's I think quite cynical and problematic is that it pops up, mm. and then, you know, people get asked to speak on panel, like suddenly people are zombified and they wake up. Black History Month must get a black person. (laughs) You know, suddenly they're woken up to diversity and to history, um, one, and then are scrabbling around to get um, black people often to do work that's unpaid, Mm. you know, and thank God for millennials because they're all about getting paid, I think, and that's fantastic. You know, I think, you know, they've taught, the world um, something about valuing labor um, which is important the other thing is that um, black history month tends to center on african-american experience and lives and in the uk there is something strange going on where the uk has a history and we're not we don't seem to know our own history in Mm. terms of blackness and it didn't start with the windrush generation no You know, this is a myth we've been sold and we're buying that myth. You know, black people have been here since time, since Roman times. You know, Mm. it's like, mm, let's let's go as far back. You know, we have been here since time and not just since the 50s. One, places like Liverpool and Cardiff get erased from history because actually the evidence of <laughs> being here since time is right there in Liverpool and right there in Cardiff and parts of London actually East London so we don't speak about that and we exist in a in a state of amnesia I always say it's radical to remember what we've been taught to forget that's one of my mantras Oof. and we've been taught to forget deliberately so that our relationship to Britain as black people is tenuous. Um, We don't really belong, which is a lie. Um, We belong because we've been here since time. We also belong because, like white working class people, our free and underpaid labour has built capitalism and the institutions in this country. So nobody can tell us you don't belong because actually my ancestors built this. And all our ancestors, because of you know, what they call miscegenation and rape in the Caribbean and um, in in Africa came from here too. Yeah. Right. So right. we belong. You know, my blood is the blood in the soil just as much as Queen Elizabeth's blood. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so we've James
1: been ba- Yeah. James Baldwin says if one has to prove one's title
2: to the land is 400 years not enough. Exactly. Yeah. And it is enough. Mm. That's a really good quote, actually. Mm. So we don't have to prove anything. We already belong. What we have to do is feel entitled to claim that right. And what we've been told is you don't belong. You're an immigrant. You're part of. No, we're not immigrants. Right. You know, we have a right to be here just as much as anybody else. Because yeah. we built this. And so Black we History built this. becomes
1: us. Petitioning white people to remember.
2: Yeah. (laughs) To remember their own history. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hi, you know, I'm here. No. We were always here. Yeah. yeah. You know, we built, we built this, we built institutions just like your white working class ancestors did. Some of who were our ancestors built this. Some of who, you know, you know, the slave ancestors, some of whom were your ancestors as well. If you're really looking at it that way, Mm. because you can't tell whose ancestors were what ancestors, you know, some of who were Asian, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Mm. We built this, you know, we are entitled to feel we belong here and not that we're some sort of passing phase that, you know, can be kicked out at 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 a whim. Mm. Steve, <laughs> I'm just enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny the way you like. <laughs> a rapture. Yeah, but it's true yeah. because it's like we're we're sold so many things as truths that we're a minority. We're not a minority. We're a majority, we're a global majority. Yes. We're not a minority. So once you start to think in those terms, it, it, it plants a seed in your brain, I am not powerful. We are powerful. Mm-hmm. We just have been taught that we're not, and we have to unlearn those lies. You know, we really have to, it's like it's like putting on new glasses. you know it's, it's, your thing was a metaphor. We should put take off the glasses, put on the cap, and know we're powerful. We're powerful. We're desirable. We're amazing. We're wonderful. But believe it anyway. Do you know what I mean?
1: Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm enjoying that. <laughs> well, I was listening. To, <laughs> well, I was listening to David Olasoga on the Pluto Press. Oh yeah. Podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm and he he spoke so passionately about um staying power yeah and how transformative Peter Fryer. Yeah, yeah and how transformative yeah that book was because he grew up in Newcastle and was <laughs> driven out of his home and was beaten mm. and mm. um and i think many of us don't know that experience yeah. it's not an experience that is often spoken about that's
2: correct
1: and this idea of belonging and identity mm. it feels queer yeah. Right. And mm. and so in that respect, not only as our as our as our black identity has it not only been forged in the history and it's through the blood and the soil and the title to the land, but so has our queerness.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. It's a. This is a. This is a queer fight. As well
2: It is But we have to remember That blackness itself Is not a Is not a culture In a way There's no such thing As black culture Okay Because my parents Are from different Caribbean islands I tell you They're so different One is Trinidadian one's Jamaican The cultures are At opposing edges Mm. Right Nigerian culture Very different If you're Igbo Than if you're Yoruba Do you see what I'm saying Mm. So there There are some things Um which are common, like gestures, the way we laugh, maybe some some of the movements which are ancestral. But a lot of it um, is quite divergent. So there's, there isn't an essentialist black culture. No, of course not. And that's yeah? what we're
1: pushing against, right? Yeah, the and the
2: same, the monolith of black, the monolith of queer. It's like, how do we break it down, maintaining some kind of... Um, political aspect but acknowledging that we are diverse and divergent mm. you know and on and honoring that too mm. so you don't have the kind of stranglehold of the the mask for mask kind of the the mask gay men culture mm. or you know the binary culture or you know um the um, sort of um, celeb kind of lesbian default femininity which means nothing you know what I'm saying so um, yeah.
1: we're all trying to exist within it
2: yeah um, how can we embrace our diversity and not say one is better than the other that's what I'm saying yeah and one is more more, more really black. black yeah and this <laughs> one is not and one's really queer and that one's not do you see what I'm saying that's yeah. what I'm trying to say no get that it, 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 I find it it crushing, and I can't really be part of debates that then hinge on kind of centering essentialism.
1: Yeah, and there and there's an erudition. I think there's a <coughs> a very academic. I think both from black and queer, and particularly at the intersection of black and queer, mm. everything can be quite academic and quite. Mm. Um, stringent mm.
2: and theoretical <laughs> theoretical yeah, in, abstract. in abstract and I, I, I can't live my life in abstract I, I find it I find it really really hard mm. and that's why m- my films are around complexity and flawed people like in all my films people are flawed they're not perfect they, people make mistakes they fuck up because we are human and frail You know and it's like then how how do we find our truths and how do we come out of that to be compassionate and to be loving and to learn you know from the mistakes that we've made i i you know positive role models don't look in my work for that you know positive quote-unquote representation mm -mm. because because my positive isn't your positive you know what i'm saying it's like who's positive?
1: Right, it's like yeah.
2: yeah, what, Mr. Corporate Lawyer, you know, what is that the positive? Right. Like, you know, it's the one with the designer suit. Is that well, no. Yeah. I, I to me that's not positive because I want to know like what did you do to get that? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you yeah, know what I'm saying? For and, sure. and and what is your struggle? So meanwhile you've got that, I want to know what your life is like, you know, how do you negotiate your corporate job, Mr. Corporate? or Miss Corporate, I want to know, not just see you like this kind of avatar.
1: Yeah, flat.
2: Flat, yeah.
1: Mm. Um, I think many ways we're trying to, there seems to be for queer black people so many conditions to our humanity. That's correct. Or so many conditions to the recognition of our humanity that that's part of the struggle is, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, is finding ourselves and indeed perhaps our humanity outside of is is in your work is in this flawedness is in this yeah humanness that suggests that we're all like this whether or not we embrace that and complexity we, or not we
2: can't be perfect no. we can try to be better human beings and be kinder and be compassionate and listen but but perfection is not the goal. And I see a lot of people beating themselves up to be the perfect activist, to say the perfect thing, you know, to be completely really PC me. all <laughs> the time and uh, in your entire history, or else you're a really bad person. I find it like, oh my God, um, what have we become that we've become these um, these people that don't look at ourselves but look to other people, project onto other people our own fears right mm-hmm. our own fears that we're not perfect so we push onto somebody oh you're the imperfect one not self-examining our, our own our own journeys which have been tumultuous you yeah. know we, we don't we're in a world that crushes who we are from very very young it's like i don't know about you but i knew i was queer from a very young age and i knew it was something not to talk about right you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and I had to negotiate that life until I could actualize myself Um, and I look back and think what was the damage that was done while I was silent and how many of us grew up masking continue to mask still are right (laughs) we're not talking about that Mm. my work deals with that how many of us grew up you know, of squeezing ourselves into the, 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 um, the round hole when we are square pegs, that then in order to do that, we self-medicate, you know, because the incidence of alcoholism and drug addiction is higher amongst LGBT people than the general population. Mm-hmm. That's not a coincidence. And this is global. This is not just one country. This is a global phenomenon. So we have to look at the cost to our own mental health To ourselves and, and how are we showing that in our work How are we honestly talking about that In our activism Than rather putting up individuals As positive role models You don't know their lives <laughs> Do, do mm. you know what I mean You don't know what's their backstory. I'm interested in the backstory. I'm not interested in the end I'm interested in the process Of how people came When I talk to people one on one I'm just like wow, your journey to this place, I just want to embrace because it's not easy, Mm -hmm. you know. It isn't easy for that child, not protected by parents, to come out and into the world and survive, as you say. I call it thrive, Mm. to thrive. (laughs) We're delayed because a lot of times our heterosexual pairs are doing things that we are allowed to develop in that way. We develop later. Mm. Lots of ways. And some people possibly never at all. <laughs> do you know what I mean? For sure. Is that too serious? No, I love that. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: To close, I ask everyone the same question.
2: To close? Yeah. Okay. What do you hope for? I hope... Um, that's a really good question. I used to think in terms of the world outside, like... Mm, things will change on the outside but I think we have to live our life like if we want to see a change in the outside world like in our leaders and things like that we can't put it on the leaders to do it we have to start to do it ourselves it's like you can't you know they go oh when will this war end in you know you know Palestine Israel blah 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 all these kind of things and you just think well you, you haven't spoken to your father for like how many years so You, you think that's gonna stop? But you, you know, looking at your own conflict, your own wars, basically. So wow, that's powerful. Do you know what I mean? For me, it's like, what are your own wars that you're not dealing with?
1: (laughs) That was like a kick in the
2: nuts. (laughs) Oh, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Your beautiful nuts will be protected. (laughs) that's my hope. (laughs) 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 Yeah,
1: Mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Fight. Yeah. Focus on your own wars. Mm. Or start those conversations. Yeah, I love that. So your hope is that we start that we start to look within for what we're looking for from From without.
2: Because why are we expecting a big change out there when we can't even do the change? (laughs) (laughs) I know.
1: Oh yeah, fuck. You know. (laughs) Yes.
2: And also we're being vulnerable with each other in real life. And that's, I think, that's a beautiful thing that's happening amongst Cutie Pop people. Mm. That we are starting to have conversations amongst ourselves that are not curated from outside. Yes, you know, so we're being honest with each other and being vulnerable with each other and, you know, starting to speak uncomfortable truths to ourselves and each other and, you know, learn from each other, hold each other. And I think I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's really good, and and that's really positive, and those are the things I hold on to.
1: Campbell X is an award-winning filmmaker who directed the queer urban rom-com feature Stud Life, which was awarded the Screen Nation's Independent Spirit Award and Best Black LGBT Film in the Hotter Than July Film Festival. He is always at work, and you can find out more by following the links in our show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City. For these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats, Ashe.